Good morning and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser this morning or this afternoon or this evening, wherever this finds you, uh, I will be your Dungeon Muser. Uh, so today I just wanted to record a quick, uh, uh, a quick up- I guess a quick update uh, and a quick uh, kind of debrief of uh, a couple recent sessions uh, that I had uh, that seemed to go r- really, really well. Um, uh, and I want to talk about sort of the... Uh, I know this. This is a bit of cross pollination here, but I want to talk about uh, what um, uh, what I've been experiencing on the YouTube channel the last little while uh, as well, too. And um, this past week has really helped uh, clarify some uh, some ideas I was having. I was feeling pretty restless there for a little bit as I was dropping a couple games and then trying to figure out what to to run to replace them. But boy, like uh, after a good week of gaming, it really helps to uh, you know reorient yourself and to kind of clear your head. Um, I'm also going to talk about the um, upcoming gaming marathon uh, that I've got as well, too. Like at the time of recording, I have uh, about four days left before I hit the road to head back to my hometown and uh, spend a week or so there. So I'm going to have a pause in uh, the stream games uh, during that uh, vacation, uh, apart from the gaming marathon and apart from the uh, um, Astonishing Swordsman. Actually, there's a couple of games I am going to be streaming. So really, it's just going to be our Wednesday and Thursday and Fridays. I will not be uh, uh, streaming, but... Uh, um, so I actually want to start with a, a call-in from, um, uh, call-in from Colin, uh, from a buddy of mine and a player in uh, one of my games and a co-player in, uh, one of, uh, the, uh, another game I play in. So let's start with that. Hey, Kevin, it's Colin, AKA Kane the Hammerer. And listen, man, I'll take my hat off to you. We just finished up the last session in your Ash game and what an epic it was. I don't know how you pulled that off. Um, multiple adversaries, multiple players. I can't even think now. Was there seven of us with all our allies? Oh, my goodness. So much going on. You managed to kind of dance over the um, rule queries and get stuff straight. Yeah. <laughs> You dealt with my curveballs where I didn't know the rules too well. <laughs> and, uh, man, I tell you what, I, I feel that was a, a GM's nightmare made good. And um, I got the feeling you enjoyed it too. So well done and many thanks. Catch you later. So first off, a big thanks to Colin for uh, the vo- very kind uh, voice message. Uh, that was awesome. I Yeah, you are absolutely right. I had as much fun as everyone else did with that. That was, I can't believe the three hours flew by as quickly as they did with that. That was a extremely fun encounter. Um, so the uh, encounter that Colin's talking about is our most recent. It's episode 10 of our Reavers of Tula uh, session or campaign where we're playing uh, Jeff Tulanian's Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. Uh, we're playing the campaign in a, um, a custom kind of setting. It's it's uh, starts in Hyperborea in the, the sort of default setting, but then there's been this mysterious new continent that the guys have uh, traveled to to explore. And um, yeah, this uh, most recent episode saw them and uh, they're uh, some allies, some Wemmick allies. If you know, don't know what a Wemmick is, a Wemmick is like effectively like a lion centaur. Um, it's an old uh, monster that was introduced in the Monster Manual 2 uh, for AD&D. And I just have been obsessed with the illustration for the Wemmick since I was a kid. So um, knowing that I was able to draw on so many 
uh, AD&D things uh, that I loved from, uh, you know, back in the day uh, to throw into my Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game. I, <laughs> I was, it was maybe not surprising for anyone who knew that, that I was going to have some um, uh, Wemmick in this. But in any event, the session featured them storming this uh, keep where a bunch of uh, beastmen, and they're called Vormus. It's from uh, Clark Ashton Smith's uh, stories of, I think it's from the stories of Hyperborea, actually. Um, but um, the way that I was presenting them is basically I found some cool art for the old uh, He-Man villain, Beastman. And, I mean, not like cartoonish art. It looked pretty scary and fearsome and whatnot. So we used that as the way of uh, describing what the, the Vormus looked like or the Beastman. And the session featured seven players... Uh, five Wemmick NPCs, about a little more than 30 Beastmen, and two uh, Battle Bears. And the Beastmen were a variety of uh, more powerful uh, warriors and then some just general tribesmen or raiders. And then there were some uh, uh, spellcasters involved in the, in the uh, fight as well, too. And then these two massive, you know, kind of like dire bear things that were ritually scarified and stuff like that. And um, man, what a fight. Like, it just... Um, there's... A couple of things that, um, well, I mean, I guess first off, so uh, I heard from Colin shortly thereafter, uh, and which was awesome because I was just buzzing from the campaign. And then I also heard from another one of my players on Twitter, uh, uh, George, uh, and then I heard from another one of my players, Arlen, on, um, uh, he not only uh, tweeted me, he also recorded a podcast talking about on uh, Live from Pelham's Wasteland. And if, uh, if you're looking for Another uh, cool gaming podcast to add to your repertoire. I, I cannot recommend that one enough. Uh, Arlen has some really interesting and um, really uh, thoughtful things to say about uh, role-playing games and the games that he plays and runs. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I, I guess that like that, that that suggested to me that it resonated with uh, a few of our players. But, uh, you know, the um, this is now about... Uh, so at the time of recording, it is uh, end of May 2019. We're coming up on my annual gaming marathon. And this is around the time when I first made my my kind of my initial foray into the OSR community. You know, I really started... Uh, it was after the first gaming marathon, I believe, is when I started snagging uh, some OSR books and, um, you know, products and, and uh, really starting to get some of them to the table to see what, you know, what all the fuss is about. And it's kind of funny to think of it as being you know, coming up on my annual anniversary with it, um, with that style of play. And before I, I get into the, talking about the actual session too, I want to take a moment to just kind of actually look back at uh, one of the uh, first things that I picked up for that. And that was the Osric uh, book and the uh, old school, that's the uh, old school reference index compilation. And it's one of the kind of the progenitors for the um, the OSR movement. It was a an effort to sort of basically publish a uh, open so uh, source version of the the old AD&D game and and the afterword for the second I think second edition I've got um whatever edition I've got here um this is uh, the after in the afterword they talk about the sort of some of the the I would see the as because for me I wasn't involved with it it, it set out what sort of the ideas behind uh, old school play and I'd say for myself at the time, I saw them more as promises. These are promises that uh, I could uh, see fulfilled by playing this style of play. Why, you know, what you would get out of playing in that old school manner. So this is, uh, you have to forgive me for a bit of a, uh, a read here, but um, these are the things that uh, 
Stuart Marshall, one of the um, the guys behind, it was him and, and uh, Matt um, Finch, uh, I think, who were behind Osric. But anyway, here's what Stuart says. So Stuart reads, having said that, so uh, please follow this advice and it'll improve your game. Uh, having said that, I can go on to say things that I really wanted to say in the afterward. They are first, play Osric fast. Part of the beauty of this system is with a little knowledge and practice, you can run a battle between 10 player characters and a dozen hirelings and henchmen and a handful of summoned monsters on one side and 30 ogres with a shaman and two dozen wargs on the other and you can resolve it in 30 minutes flat. It helps to roll dice in handfuls, but the big things that make that possible are the simplicity of combat rules and morale. Don't forget morale. It's important. It's for skipping over the boring bits. Uh, the moment be- it becomes obliv- uh, obvious to intelligent monsters that they'll lose a fight, they will run or surrender. Um, and the next one is, uh, and this brings me to the second thing, which is please do skip over the boring bits. Fudge things to make them faster. And if they can't be fudged, then the DM and players should share jobs fairly. If the party's using detailed encumbrance rules, then the GM shouldn't have to do all the bean counting. After all, the GM's busy doing things. They're doing, I'm just going to keep saying DM because... That's just how I always say it. Uh, DM-like things, such as drinking the beer that's so vital for his or her concentration, or laughing cruelly at the player's latest mistake, or and has uh, and so has no time to do the math. The third thing is, Osric generating a player character is fast. If you die, it's a quick and easy job to roll a new character and get straight back into the action, which means that dying isn't so much of a pain in the neck as it might be with other systems. Um, assume you'll lose some player characters from time to time and plan accordingly. Once you're past the first few levels, most players should accumulate a few henchmen who can replace their main character if the main character dies or is petrified, disintegrated, converted to green slime, swallowed whole by some huge monster, falls into a sphere of annihilation, or, well, Osric's a dangerous world. Lots of things can happen. If you die and you fail your resurrection chance, deal with it in good grace. Sure, nobody likes to lose a character, but don't take it too seriously. This is a game. In Osric, you aren't entitled to be the hero. You might just get to be the hero, but don't expect it as a right. There's a fourth thing. Make sure everyone around the table gets a chance to have their say, but don't tolerate dithering. If your GM asks, what do you do now? You better have an answer uh, at once or expect to lose the opportunity. Uh, The fifth and last thing is your uh, uh, your GM isn't called a storyteller for a reason. He or she isn't telling you a story with uh, you cast as the protagonist. If you want that, try one of White Wolf's games. The GM creates a world. You create a character who wants something. It's up to you to go out and get it. Story is the result of the game, not a process within it. Um, So that's the end of his his quote. And... um, so in retrospect, there's some things about that that I think I really dove in on that over the last year. I've really tried to run games with that kind of uh, uh, principle in mind. Our Barrow Maze campaign, which went about 34 sessions, uh, which makes to around between about 120 and 160 hours in uh, in the Barrow Maze. <laughs> so we started playing that with uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition's playtest, and then we switched over to uh, Kevin Crawford's Scarlet Heroes. And... Um, then I, I um, in the beginning of this year is when I, I finally got a chance to start running Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. I implemented, uh, that was after I ran a couple of one-shots with it, and I'd implemented some um, some mechanics that I wanted to sort of, uh, that I wanted to mitigate some of the, uh, the more um, clearly lethal aspects of, uh, or potentially lethal aspects of uh, old school play, uh, which includes, you know, like rolling your dice, rolling your... Um, uh, uh, attributes and, and so forth. So um, the game that we're currently running, the game that the guys have that uh, Colin called in about, uh, it is basically Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea played with about 95% of the rules. 
Um, we don't tick out any rules in that. What I do is I just add a couple things in. Uh, I've added in uh, cantrips uh, for spellcasters because the, um, especially with the the potential lethality of low level play and and the paucity of uh, spells that the uh, spellcasters have access to, I wanted to give other ways for spellcasters to feel magical in the um, you know in the game. In, in different scenes, especially in non-combat scenes, without having to di- you know dive into the um, big spells, I didn't want to go so far as what Fifth Edition does, where they're basically like you know they've got a magical you know bow, or, or they've got a magical whatever. Like it, I, I don't. That's one thing I don't really like about uh, Fifth Edition is I feel that the the cantrips they don't. I mean, they do feel flavorful in the sense that you do get to do lots of magic stuff all the time, but I think it infringes on some of the other thematic space of some of the other characters. You know, like um, if you are, I don't know, I'm not going to get sidetracked in, in bitching about 5th edition, but uh, I didn't want to have that feel. That to me would break the feel for Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, the very uh, more earthy kind of feel that uh, that, that has. But um, the cantrips still don't, I mean, there's some useful things in there that aren't overpowering. They're, you know, they do little things like, you know, stabilize someone who's dying because you can be dying in this game pretty easily, especially at low levels. Uh, you can't. You only do that once. So if that person stabilizes and then gets uh, hit again, they're out of luck. Um, nothing does damage in any of the cantrips, um, and a- anything that does sort of replicate the um, like a spell, uh, it has. It is a shittier version of that, uh, and it uh, it doesn't. Um, what do you call it? Um, uh, it has a concentration uh, requirement. So you kind of have to. That's your whole action is maintaining that thing. And those are spells like. Um, I've got a version of light called radiance that is a concentration thing where you you know create light at the end of your uh, hand, your staff, your whatever. But it's way less effective than what the there's a smaller radius and it it requires you to be concentrating all the time. And if you blow your concentration, uh, then you lose that light. Um, similarly, there's an ability called sense magic um, where you can the only thing it does not duplicate uh, detect magic because I found in my Pathfinder game I fucking hated. When people kept doing that over and over again, expecting that to be, you know, a way of identifying anything magical. So I, I stripped it back down to being just, um, it can detect uh, magic items. Because that just, it becomes, I found in the course of the five months we've been playing, you know, people would find a horde of things. And I'm in, you know, I, I mean, I don't know how anyone else runs their games. Um, but you, you sort of inevitably end up all but telling the players, this is a magical thing by the way that you describe it. You know, so... If I'm doing that already anyway, is it really that much more fun for them to have to waste a first level spell to figure out what's magic and what's not magic? Um, in a similar vein, I think I'm going to do away with um, the, what do you call it, the uh, um, identify spell. Because I've been thinking the last little while, what's the fun that comes from that? Like, how does that add fun to the... Um, like, and I'm, I'm not saying that uh, challenge isn't fun, but how does the identify spell itself add fun to the game is it fun for any involved to have to you know wait for the perfect moment to blow a bunch of money and you know take a huge constitution hit just to identify what spells what uh your your magic items actually do and that's after you blew another spell trying to you know uh, figure out what's magic and what's not magic i i'm not sure that's a lot of like i i don't think that adds a substantial amount of fun to the you know to the proceedings um it doesn't make for a fun risk reward kind of thing it just 
penalizes you unnecessarily for what should be a cool thing, which is finding loops. So I'm just going to deal away with that and have Detect Magic uh, allow you to identify. So you, if you blow a first level spell, that's the better benefit for, for that. You can use your Sense Magic cantrip to identify it. You can, boom, blow that. Um, but um, anyway, so that that's, I mean, I'm getting lost in house rules here. There's that. Uh, I also use a mechanic called uh, Astonishing Fortune, um, where... Every player starts with a point of it. Every session has a point of it. And uh, as you go through and play, uh, you can blow the point of Astonishing Fortune to um, re-roll a dice roll, to automatically save on a saving throw, to make a minor edit to a scene, or to uh, negate a, a damage result. So, like, if you get hit with a, you know, a dragon jump... So, I mean, there's no dragons in uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, but if a dragon smashes down on you, get, that'll give you an opportunity to mitigate that, you know... Um, now, that um, runs a little further away from, you know, reading through the, uh, Stuart's uh, kind of afterward there, it runs away from some aspects of the, of the OSR play. You know, obviously, like, having a meta currency like uh, Astonishing Fortune, it moves the game further to- or closer towards a story thing. But I don't think that if you ask the players, you know, uh, in the campaign, nobody feels like they have plot immunity. You know, what... what um, uh, and that, that, I think, is the, the concern I would have with, with giving too much agency to the players. Um, I just said I wasn't going to shit on 5th, and I'm going to mention 5th again, but 5th edition uh, characters do feel fairly precious. You know, like they've got pretty big, uh, respectable, in comparison to their OSR versions, they certainly have a lot more healing resources. Uh, they've got a lot more uh, damaging stuff that they can they can pump out fairly regularly. Um and, uh, you know, once after an encounter, there, there doesn't feel like there's a, a lingering consequence from uh, certain encounters, apart from blowing through or chewing through some of your um, your healing, uh, what are they called, the hit dice that you use for your healing surges. I, I know they're not called healing surges, but that's what they call them in fourth. And, um, you know, like I, I ran a, a brief campaign with fifth edition recently. Um, where it was set in the World of Warcraft universe. And it was a lot of fun. Like, I, I did have uh, fun running that. It was very easy to reskin on the fly. But when I compare the experience running that to running Ash, I, I just so greatly prefer Ash. You know, like, I just... Um, the I have a, uh, a great deal of experience with uh, D&D 4th Edition. 4th Edition is the edition of D&D that I've run the most. You know, I think Basic is probably a, a fairly close second to that. Um, but, um, we played just an ungodly amount of fourth. Like we would have weekends where we would do two days of like 16 hour or eight hour sessions, like just massive marathon sessions. Um, and, um, that game was extraordinarily, uh, tactical, you know, and one of the things that I found as we got higher level and, uh, as I was trying to design, you know, effectively challenging encounters was that, you know, you ended up having to sort of design filler material to chew through the player's resources in order for them to get through, you know, to, to be in the position where they really feel like they're in danger when they face the big boss. And uh, fifth edition, it's not nearly as bad as what fourth was by any means, but it does kind of feel like that. Like, because you can take, I know it's an hour rather than a shorter period, but I don't know. I mean, there were certain things about it that, uh, about fifth that I did uh, like. I like the idea of rituals in that, and I'm, I'm playing with the idea of how to maybe implement that into uh, Ash as well. And uh, I guess that's, you know, one of the things that Stuart doesn't mention in his afterward, while, I mean, you know, we're, um, uh, I am running uh, my Ash campaign in my, uh, now a couple of Ash campaigns actually, 
using more of a you know a, a modern uh, sensibility with the um, with uh, you know meta currencies to keep the characters alive or to alter the story um, with uh, cantrips. You know, uh, I am um, uh, I, I'm I'm running a little more of a modern uh, game, but uh, I, I compare that to the games to the to the st- the feel of the play with my fifth edition game, and I just. I don't know. Uh, like one of the things that that I find I, I like a great deal more with um, with the uh, these games or the the old school games is the the earthy feel to it. You know, we're ten sessions in into our Ash game right now, into our uh, the campaign that the guys all called in or wrote in about, and um, we I just started off two other players or two other groups with um, with astonishing uh, swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea as well. And, uh, you know, low-level play in that game is just awesome. It's so much fun, you know. And I, I compare that to what you, you know, the low-level play that you get with, say, our, you know, the Pathfinder game uh, in particular. Pathfinder, I, I, uh, I for those who um, I'm, may not be watching the YouTube channel uh, on a regular basis and did not see my recent update, I have actually uh, stopped the, or I've, I've kiboshed my uh, Iron Gods uh, campaign. I, I just found that the I, the players, uh, the discussion with the players, is particularly in co- tactical encounters, there was so much of the rules intruding on that game. Uh, it was just so much talk about the rules or other potential you know uh, circumstances. And there was feed, um, some... Not sass back, because it, it wasn't intended in that way, I don't think, but um, there was far too much commentary of how the rules should work. And that just drove me fucking crazy. Uh, and I get that that's how Pathfinder players expect the player to be, you know, the game to be played. Um, but the the combination of the players saying, like, well, I should be able to do this because of whatever, you know, because it says it in the book, that drove me fucking nuts. Like it's uh, if uh, and it wasn't the fact that someone was disagreeing with me uh, on something. It was the fact that more often than not, what that particular player was doing was cherry picking the best elements of that uh, of that rule set, the things that would benefit them, but not any of the mitigating things. Things like, um, oh, I don't want to get into it too much, but I mean. It just, it drove me nuts. And that's what my past experience with Pathfinder was like as well, where a lot of players would cherry pick. They'd remember the the good parts of the rules and they'd forget the fucking mitigating stuff, the stuff that didn't make it as badass and, you know, K-E-W-L cool that uh, they thought it did. And that drove me bonkers. And it's not only because, you know, um, not only because we're suddenly derailing the game to talk about game mechanics, it's also the fact that um, I sound like an asshole. I'm constantly telling the players, no, you can't do that. No, it's not that way. No, you can't uh, do the cool thing that you're hoping to do. And you can contrast that with the way that uh, these OSR games go, where you, people just ask, well, can I try this? How would I work this thing out? And almost always, you get to say yes. You know, there's almost always an easy way to figure out some way of reskinning the rules. As an example, in our session from uh, yesterday, the, the this great siege of Iron Fang Keep, um, one of the players wanted to basically do a, a, some maneuver similar to what this sort of parry maneuver was in uh, in the game as written, but use it to try and make it more difficult for this uh, this giant bear to improve its grapple on him. And it was super easy. Like, yep, absolutely. Here's how we'll do that. You know. And another player in that session wanted to pick up someone and toss down their you know uh, toss the body uh, of a fallen foe. This this character had been subject to an enlarged spell, so he was 
fucking huge. And he wanted to pick up one of the Beastmen and throw it into another one. And yeah, I was like, absolutely. Didn't give any penalties to attack rolls or anything like that for it because like the in, in the grand scheme of things, if I if I wanted to if I was playing a game like say Rollmaster or Pathfinder where there is a rule for everything, you have to go and then uh, you know calculate that because the thought is is well if you if you don't do that penalty then the next time someone tries to do something like that then someone will build a character around that around throwing bodies because they you know that game is a lot is a great deal of it is about um, you know min maxing and, and maximizing the gameplay and I don't mean to, to sound like I'm shitting on Pathfinder like that's just what the game is and that's fine there's a, a great deal of people who really really enjoy that game. Um, as a player, I'll, I would probably enjoy the hell out of it. Um, that sounds like a lot of fun. I like engaging uh, complex mechanics. I like coming up with cool combos. In fact, I, I know I've played Pathfinder before, and I know that I, I enjoy playing it. Um, but I really have absolutely <laughs> do not enjoy running it. It is not the kind of game I like running. And the OSR style of just you know letting things kind of run loosey goosey that I really enjoy. Um, now, in terms of the speed, one of the things I, I disagree with about uh, Stuart is, yeah, you can absolutely do that if you're not, uh, you know, filling up with any kind of narrative uh, space or, you know, a narrative uh, content, if you're just sitting there and just want to get through that encounter. But, you know, the fact that it took us three hours to get through this is a completely reasonable length of time, given the number of parties that were involved there and how much time we spent, you know, just drinking in the narrative flavor. Uh, you know, of, of uh, what was going on. And it wasn't just for the sake of, you know, a, a overly descriptive DM. It's also the fact that the players specifically made use of the environment. They engaged with the fiction and uh, made use of the things that were in the environment to try and maximize the, uh, you know, the outcomes for their players, which is fucking awesome. That is absolutely what story games are about, is sort of, you know... Um, creating a collaborative kind of fictional environment and then interrogating that environment to gain uh, mechanical benefits. That's, that's in broad strokes what you do in most of these story-focused uh, games. And, um, and we saw that a number of times. We saw that when someone was leaping from um, you know, battlements to, to kind of backstab down on this, uh, um, uh, this shaman who was casting uh, spells on, on our resident, um, what do you call it, our resident uh, barbarian. We saw that when... Um, the uh, uh, one player, you know, grabbed the Vormus and tossed it, you know, uh, tossed him into a crowd of other Vormus. Uh, we saw that when uh, um, another one of the players, you know, um, building on the how broken and old this place was, sort of poked their way through to talk to, you know, there was this radial roof to talk to this these captured Wemmick to get them kind of riled up and, and get them ready to go and fight, you know, more uh, beastmen. Um, this is the, you know, it was the proverbial, you know, like the prisoners are free kind of moment where they all come charging out and start attacking their, their captors along with their, uh, you know, the, the rescuers who are helping them. And, um, and that's one of the things I think that is really, I, the thing I enjoy the most about these old school games, you know, is, uh, the simplicity of rules, but so, so the, there is a firm scaffold there, particularly with, uh, 
with Ash. Ash is, um, if, if you're not familiar with it, and if you listen to this podcast, I have no, <laughs> I have no idea why you wouldn't be, but Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea 2nd Edition is a, basically, it, it uh, is an extrapolation of uh, either first or uh, bits of first, bits of second edition AD&D into a, um, a more streamlined uh, game. There's a lot of little tweaks that have been made to attributes and, and so forth uh, that ha- they've eliminated um, um, the uh, proficiencies uh, from it. Uh, they, um, what else have they done? They've, there's no multi-classing. Uh, it is a humanocentric world. There's no Tolkien references in here. It just focuses on the influences of Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft to make a, for a game that has like 30 or about 20 really, really cool classes to play. Like every single one of the classes in the game are, are super badass. And um, yeah, and then it, uh, it also has a pretty crunchy tactical uh, uh, system that I find and, and a bunch of really interesting uh, combat maneuvers you can do that make for a really, really dramatic combat system. You know, like the... Um, it, it, there's a bunch of uh, design elements that I think uh, Jeff Tillanian kind of uh, included in that game. But one of the uh, key things is that melee warriors are fucking badass in that game. They're super, super cool. You know, um, there's tons of things they get to do. There's tons of ways that specific weapons feel very evocative and they, they, they feel that, you know, uh, using a spear in a charge feels very different from using a sword, you know, and... Uh, Anyway, I mean, I, I've I think I've sung the praises of that game quite a bit on this, but um, that's the thing that I, I really love about this style of play. You know, after a year of exploring the kind of the different games that are available in, in the OSR, um, what I've found now is the style of OSR play that I really love the most. And that's exactly the kind of game that I'm running in my Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game, my Reavers of Tula game. Um, and one of the reasons that I love that, setting aside the fact that the game is just amazing anyway, is it's so easy to draw from other old school stuff. Uh, since I started running Ash, uh, I've incorporated the uh, Wilderness Survival Guide, the old AD&D one. I use stuff from the uh, Monster Manual 2, like the Webmic came directly from that. I use, um, I recently picked up the uh, Dungeoneer Survival Guide as well, and I'll be using some of the materials from that. I've used uh, Critters from the Fiend Folio, uh, and I've recently realized as well that I can adapt a crap ton of stuff from AD&D 2nd Edition. So I've, I've uh, picked up a bunch of uh, AD&D 2nd Edition stuff, including uh, the old Ultimate series. I don't have a complete set just yet, but I'm, I'm um, about three books off from that. And it's kind of the, the weirdo ones, the Barbarian, Paladin, and... Um, oh, what's the other one I'm missing? Shoot. Barbarian, Paladin, and Ranger, I think. Is there a complete Ranger? I don't know. I mean, in any event, it's, it's one of the minor ones. And I've got an idea of how to adapt kits into um, uh, Ash as well. I'm not going to use that for my... Uh, my ongoing uh, campaign uh, that I doesn't need that in that in that game, but uh, for some of those AD and D second edition settings like uh, Dragonlands and Ravenloft and uh, in particular Dark Sun, uh, I really really would love to use Ash as a way of revisiting those things because uh, Ash in my mind is a you know quote unquote fixed version of uh, of those games. The, some of the, the criticisms and some of the things that put me off about them when I was a kid that drove me to different games. Ash has addressed all those things, and I and with my house rules in it to make it a little more of a, um, you know, give a little more uh, kind of narrative cushion for the players. I think that uh, it's exactly the style of 
uh, fantasy role-playing game that I want to run. And I, and I don't want to, <laughs> to be honest, I don't want to run other fantasy role-playing games right now. You know, it's, uh, it's funny to, to think that I had uh, talked about gaming plans for the future and uh, for the uh, next coming uh, months. And I had talked about running uh, RuneQuest because uh, I, I got the most recent RuneQuest Glorantha version. And uh, I've had uh, quite a few requests on the YouTube channel for, for me to get that to the table as well. And to be honest, like I, uh, I am going to get it to the table. I'm going to play uh, the, um, the, the book that has the, the uh, one shot or quick start, sorry, the quick start that's in there. But I really kind of just want to, you know, like I, I, I can, there's so many other great things that I really want to try with Ash that I'm not sure that there's, you know, there's much more that uh, RuneQuest is going to give me. And RuneQuest is a very different game. It's a lot more complex um, both in terms of what the characters are capable of, what the setting requires of you, because it is such a descriptive, you know, such a, f- a filled-in uh, setting, and also what's required to run it, because like the there there are no minion rules, there's no streamlined things, so it is it strikes me as an extraordinarily complex game, and and that's what I didn't like about running Pathfinder. It's one of the reasons I, I won't run Shadowrun is because. Shadowrun, I have to engage with that level of detail for every fucking character in the game, and I just don't want to do that. That just is more work than I feel is necessary because it's never going to see, it's not going to really matter at the table. The players will never know what you know how I built that character or what whether they were built according to the rules for characters or not. So it's to me, it's just it's an unnecessary bit of bookkeeping that I just don't need to, to do. Now I haven't played it yet, so I don't know if that's the case. I, I do want to get it to the table and and see. Maybe there's some kind of revelatory experience that will happen where I see, oh, this is why they do that. And the game designers who are behind that, I have complete respect for as well. Particularly the new uh, line designer, uh, game, Jason Gerald, who did the very cool uh, Conan two D twenty game for Modifius. So. He's got the design chops on it, and there's a reason they're keeping that stuff as it is. But, uh, but anyway, um, so that's that's where I guess I am right now. So, you know, uh, with uh, coming off of this really terrific siege, which would have been probably, I mean, it's the kind of uh, I've seen in a, in a campaign that's always, you know, it can be really really memorable or can really make the I think the warts of a system really stand out. And I feel like th- with this particular game, you know, Stuart's promise of running. Not necessarily quick. I don't really care about quick. I, I care about fun. I want it to be, if everyone is engaged for as long as they need to be, if they're having fun with that experience, that's the only thing I care about, not quick. What it can't be is slow. If it feels like it's dragging, then obviously it's, you know, there needs to be some changes made. But for the promise that uh, Stuart made, which I think was that your players will be engaged and, and have fun the entire time for this, you know, these long encounters, that paid off in spades uh, for you know for our last session it was so much fun it was so exciting and um man it was a nail biter first time that everyone has spent all of their astonishing fortune by the end of the session uh which was really really cool because normally at the end of the session they get an xp bonus for that so um they can trade that whatever it wasn't spent throughout the session they get a, a little bit of xp that's thrown into the pot but um but anyway yeah so it just that's I wanted to um, to really, I mean, I guess that it was such a good session, and it's a culmination of a, a number of things of a, a year's worth of exploration of the the OSR and kind of where my head's at now in terms of that stuff, um, and um, 
Um, and yeah, I mean, I, it was and to add my voice to the to the those of my players who have said they had they had such a good time last time. So um, that's probably enough. I see I've been yapping for half an hour about this. So maybe what I'll do is I'll transition to talk about the other game that I ran this week that I found um, I had I, I was pleasantly surprised with and and what has had has got me thinking as well. So I'm going to transition to talking about Marvel superheroes. So for those who are unfamiliar, uh, the Marvel Superheroes role-playing game was something that was published between about uh, 19, uh, 1984 and I think 92-ish uh, by uh, TSR. Uh, it was, it's a, um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those uh, seminal games that was part of the uh, the kind of golden age of um, TSR, you know, where uh, D&D and... Uh, Gosh, Top Secret and Gamma World uh, or Metamorphosis Alpha uh, and Boot Hill and all these really great, evo- I don't know, just great games. Gamma Rodders. Gamma Rodders, I don't think is a classic, but it was, I remember it was out at the time. But um, the uh, I, I got in, uh, you know, I still remember going into the uh, toy store and I can't remember what toy store it was. And we saw this big yellow box uh, sitting up in the shelf where the D&D stuff was. And um, I can't remember if it was that I was on vacation or something, but my mom bought me the uh, yellow box for the basic set for Marvel superheroes, and then I later got uh, uh, the the advanced set, and uh, both of those we played the bejesus out of. Now you may be familiar with this system by the name the Phase Rip system, uh, and Phase Rip uh, stands for the uh, it's an uh, initialism, no, it's an acronym uh, for the. Um, for the f- uh, seven stats that uh, make up your your character, they are fighting, agility, strength, endurance, reason, intuition, and psyche. Every character's got uh, phase rip stats, and then characters also have health, uh, which is their sort of like hit points. They have karma, which is sort of a meta currency you spend to advance your character to m- modify dice rolls and so forth. Uh, popularity and resources. And ah, uh, boy, oh boy, oh boy! Like I just. Uh, my first, my third role-playing game was, um, no, my, my second, I can't remember if it's my second or my third, was uh, Champions. And Champions is another superhero role-playing game that had an enormous influence on me as a kid um, in terms of like my love of crunchy systems and, and so forth. And, um, but really the, the game we, the superhero game we played the most was Marvel Superheroes because we were big comic nerds, myself and my cousins. Uh, we were big comic nerds and... The game is just, it's one of the easiest, if not the easiest game to teach to people. You know, the only uh, comparable one uh, would be, oh, I think I'm getting a beeping from my smoke detector. Hold on. I've taken the battery out for now. I'll (laughs) replace that after I finish recording. Um, So the... uh, the game, as I said, is very. Uh, it's one of the easiest games. Uh, if apart, I mean, Call of Cthulhu probably is easier to teach than this. But uh, it's everything is um, determined by two different things. Well, three things: a dice roll of uh, a percentile dice, a whatever your relevant stat number is or, or stat value, which runs as is appropriate for a Marvel comics-based uh, game, runs the gamut of uh, a bunch of very Stan Lee-sounding. Uh, classes, and those are, uh, let's see here, shift zero, then feeble, poor, uh, typical, good, um, excellent, remarkable, incredible, amazing, monstrous, unearthly, shift X, shift Y, shift Z, class 1000, class 3000, class 5000, beyond. So the um, it's basically a table, if you search 
for Marvel superheroes or the um, Universal Table Marvel superheroes, you'll uh, you'll find what I'm talking about. Uh, or you can go to the, actually to the YouTube channel. We've got two sessions of us playing uh, a Marvel Cinematic Universe equivalent of Alpha Flight, the Canadian premier super team. Um, we uh, you can see what the Mar the Universal Table looks like, but basically you make your roll, you check your column, and you get a result that is one of four colors. You either get white, which is a, generally a failure, green, which is success but not a huge success, yellow, which is a pretty good success any red result, which is a critical success. Uh, so, and then depending on what you were doing or what you're trying to do, that, you know, mitigates, uh, that uh, gives you an idea of, uh, you know, of uh, what your result is. And then if you are uh, tasks or like they call them feats in the game, feats are, you know, uh, often have classes as well too. So to figure out what color of result you need, you just compare it to what your ability is. So let's say you've got a strength of uh, incredible, which would, uh, you can lift up to about uh, 10 tons. Um, if you were trying to lift, say, 800 pounds, you know, an 800 pound motorcycle, well, that would fit under the category of excellent. So that's an excellent task, which means it's less than you. You just need a green result in order to uh, succeed. Um, and you, there are different modifiers that will shift your column up or shift your column down as well. So it's a very it's a very simple game to be honest like i mean it's very once you get the hang of how to read the results and how to interpret the results it's very very easy it's also incredibly easy to modify you know or to uh, customize if you want to um, add improvised stuff on the fly it's extraordinarily easy to do that stuff and um in uh i i recently got back to the game uh, because a friend of mine had uh, we were uh, tweeting back and forth, uh, Chad Ginther, uh, who's uh, the author behind the great uh, Graveyard Mind, uh, or not comic, um, uh, novel, and the Thunder Road trilogy of uh, Canadian urban arcana that kind of fuses uh, Norse mythology with um, uh, urban fantasy. And uh, anyway, Chad is a massive fan of Marvel superheroes. We were tweeting back and forth about games that we want to play, not run, but play. And I had actually included Shadowrun 5th in that, and I included... Oh, I don't know. I didn't include uh, Pathfinder. But I, anyway, one of the things he included in his was Marvel superheroes. So being the smartass I was, all the games that he mentioned, I have. So I kind of set them all out, took a photo, and sent it back to him and said, ha-ha, yeah, let's go. And then as I put everything back away, uh, I kept Marvel superheroes out. And I started reading it again because I was procrastinating working on something else I should have been working on. Much like I'm doing right now with this recording. <laughs> so... But um, what the interesting thing is, is when I started reading it, like there's a lot more to the game than I remember and that I ever really used as a kid. There's a, a lot more complexity to the game and a lot more nuance to it. Uh, in the same way that honestly, like with my OSR uh, dive back into D&D influence games, I realized like, oh gosh, there's a lot more here that the designers had in mind that I just didn't ever use when I was a kid. So I, uh, uh, he and I had been, um, you know, kind of uh, messaging back and forth. I mean, he's rolled up a character to play in kind of the dark future of um, the uh, Days of Future Past. There's a, a great module I've got that sort of sets that, is set in that time. But then I got to thinking about, you know, I'd really like to give this thing a test. I've got my, I knew that I had my gaming marathon coming up. I knew that some of my games, I'd had some, um, uh, a lot of flux in terms of the players who were attending my games. Uh, and it's not that I was losing players, it's just that I was having different players every time. And then with the cancellation of our Iron Gods campaign, I now had a, uh, a Saturday morning that was free where I was, I was doing something different. 
Uh, so, and I was starting to run Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers then, so I, I knew I had a bunch of ash on the table. I wanted to try something different. So I, I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to try. There's stats available online and in some of the products I got for Alpha Flight. So why not just run a couple sessions? You know, I'll, I'll, I like the... Uh, Chad had the idea in his Marvel Superheroes game of running his campaign in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, just introducing other versions of the... Um, um, you know, of existing characters, and I loved the idea. So I stole it and decided, all right, I'll try that with Alpha Flight. And boy, oh boy, so we've had two sessions so far. We've got about six hours of play. And man, oh man, those have been some of the most fun um, role-playing sessions I've had in, God, in months, like months and months and months. I can't think of the last time. Actually, it's maybe close to a year. You know, um, we've had some good role-playing in some of the games I've run uh, lately, like the Warhammer uh, fantasy uh, role-play. We've had some really great uh, RP scenes in that. Uh, but, um, and I mean, Ash has some of that, but it's not the majority of the game. And that was what was really interesting about those sessions, is that I wrote them, uh, they're much more script-heavy than what I, you know, I, I run with my Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers game or with any of the OSR games. It was a lot more, it was closer to what I do in my one-shots where there's a lot of kind of, you know, key, there's framing, so like there's a scenes that are, it's clear when a scene starts and ends. I talk about uh, the transitions and the, you know, the, the sort of establishing shots in more of a cinematic language and visual language than I do in um, like a, a narrative kind of way. Uh, or like a, I don't know, I mean, like a fiction base, or like if it was a, a novel. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, being that it's the cinematic universe, I guess maybe that's appropriate. But um, but in any event, what we ended up with was, uh, man, like I just had so much fun in that first session. And uh, the players seemed to as well. And I heard back uh, from some viewers as well about it, uh, uh, which were quite favorable. They, they seemed to really enjoy that. And... Um, we ran another session on Friday and this is, you know, advancing along. I'm, I've been writing these sessions pretty much on the day of figuring out what's going to actually happen and get sort of, you know, set up what scenes are going to happen. And then uh, I make sure that we've got lots and lots of opportunity for the players to be role-playing. And we're doing this in an, in an ensemble, uh, style as well, where each of the players has selected one character as like their character, but the other characters are sort of like, you know, they've, they've sort of got, um, soft dibs on them you know like they'll they'll play those characters if they're here but if they're not at the session someone else will role play those characters and uh it's been really cool you know it allows all the players the players don't have to sit out any scenes they're always involved with stuff they always get to make dice rolls and because of the the relative simplicity of the game system it's really easy to just uh you know jump in and, and mechanically master a character that you did not know before you know, and um, that's part of the genius of that game, I think, is that uh, it just, you know, it gives you the structure and the, and the framework you need to be able to run these kinds of superheroic stories without the, um, all the, you know, without getting bogged down in the nitty gritty of, uh, of mechanics, you know, and boy, like they were just, I, I can't wait. We've got one more session of Alpha Flight before I go on my uh, vacation, but I'm hoping the guys want to keep playing it because uh, it's been fucking fun. Like fun at the table, uh, crazy unexpected results. Uh, at the end of the first uh, episode, I won't uh, spoil it in the event that you want to go watch it, but the ending of the first episode was a jaw dropper. Nothing any of us expected. And that's the kind of thing that only happens uh, in role-playing games. You can have those kinds of twists happen in, you know, uh, fiction and whatnot as well. 
But uh, the thing that is so uh, enjoyable about role-playing games is that everyone is surprised by that. With the dice results, sometimes everybody, DM, players, is like, Jesus, I didn't expect that to happen. And that's what happened in that session. It was one of those sessions where there was just a, like, I can't believe that happened that way. And um, it was perfect as well, too. Like, it was just a, a perfect way of... Uh, you know, uh, happening. And then as we talked about it uh, between sessions about the, you know, what, how we explain that in the fiction, there was an in-fiction explanation for why things resulted that way too. So it's just, you know, it was a, in the way that role-playing games do such a good job of, you know, prompting your creativity to justify or, or reconcile the dice results with the fiction. And, uh, and it was incredibly engaging for all of us. Um, Arlen, in his most recent uh, podcast uh, on uh, live at Pelham's Waste, or live from uh, Pelham's Wasteland, says the same thing too. He see, he sounds like he's really enjoying that. And I heard from the other players as well too, and they really enjoyed the uh, uh, the the sessions. So you know, the lesson I think from that is uh, I have been struggling with running a superhero game for quite a while now because. The games that I had on offer, the three games I really genuinely cons considered actually running were Champions, um, were which I love, uh, and I will be running for a, a charity session coming up, which is going to be fun. Um, so Champions is an ongoing game, which I actually tried around la about a year ago. And uh, because of the complexity, because of the rotating cast, because of the complexity of the game, I had a hell of a time um, trying to you know, trying to run that uh, as an ongoing campaign. Um, it was just too hard to keep track of the different stats and to make sure the players knew the game enough to be able to make interesting and fun decisions where they, where they weren't just being told what to roll by me. Um, uh, it also meant that the, you know, uh, the, the uh, tactical components of the game for with uh, champions were uh, it does take up a lot of time. You know, it's it's a very very detailed system, so it takes up a lot of time to play through that stuff. So champions is one of the ones on offer. Uh, Savage Worlds, the superhero uh, companion, and um, the DC Adventures. And uh, I've run all of those uh, so far, some longer than others. And uh, DC Adventures is a great game. It's Mutants and Masterminds uh, third edition, but there's some swinging weirdness to it as well that I just, I've never really, you know, the way that they do, uh, they don't have hit points. They, they do this, uh, you know, they have a variety of saves that you need to make, um, you know, to, to resist damage, to resist abilities and stuff like that. And I just, it requires a lot of, um, uh, a lot of cumbersome math. Sometimes you're adding a lot of weird numbers, especially when you get higher level. And it's not, I mean, it's not a huge amount uh, it, it's not like, you know, you're you know, like role master where you're con consulting tables and things like that for every dice roll, but you're doing like at least, I think, two or three different sets of arithmetic um, in your head when you're trying to find out what just happened. And I don't know, like I just, I, I, I compare the experience of running that, which was a lot of fun. I love running superhero stuff compared to running these sessions of Marvel. And these just felt better. You know, it felt better to just... Um, yeah, I don't know. It just it it was there was enough rules there for us to be able to do some meaningful task resolution. The players get to make some interesting decisions. They have a meta currency they can draw on to uh, to make some uh, changes to the dice rolls if they need to. If they want to, you know, uh, they want to use that resource to make it fit with how they see the the kind of fiction playing out. But um, it also played so fast and and it was really immersive too. You know, the system really got out of the way and let us just play through some very, 
uh, a, a really fun, um, you know, role-playing heavy uh, session. There were some really great uh, character, you know, and by because of that, it allowed us to focus on some of the more dramatic moments, like, you know, the consequences of that first session and the dynamics, the changing dynamics between the characters, uh, you know, as a result of that. And it was just awesome. It was a really fun thing. And if you are not familiar with the Marvel superheroes game, um, it obviously has been out of print for, you know, 20 years or something like that. Um, but there are two websites, uh, that, um, that host, uh, uh PDF versions of the, uh, rules. And I, I, I would never really, um, you know, I, I normally would not condone piracy for the stuff, but the fact that these sites have been up for this many years where there are two parties that are involved, uh, Watsi and Disney that are notoriously litigious and they have not, uh, sent uh, cease and desist to them makes me think that they don't really care. You know, like if people are, are wanting to play this and, uh, you know, play these role-playing games and, and share these role-playing games, it seems like they're still up. So if you did a, a Google search for Marvel Superheroes uh, Classic, you'll be able to find somewhere to check them out. Um, if you have, a, you know, have not had a chance to give them a, a try, I would, I would uh, strongly uh, encourage you to just give it, a, give it a try at the table, see what you like. It's so easy to just pick a character and then go. Or alternatively, there's got some really, really fun... Uh, character creation rules in it as well. It's all random uh, generation, so it's not like uh, uh, champions where you're building a point by character that'll fit your preconceived idea. Um, you randomly generate the character, but it's also simple enough of a game that you could really, you know, if you've got a um, a willing DM uh, or judge, as that game calls it, you could build the character you want. If you've got an idea, like a cool idea in mind, I want to be a you know, a character who's got a, a cast off, you know, from um, or a uh, receive the, the power broker treatment. Well, you know, it's it'll be easy to put together a character that would look like that. I want to play a character who was a, you know, um, uh, sort of has cobbled together uh, some um, ruins from uh, Tony Stark's uh, one of his cast off armor. OK, well, we can figure out what, you know, how to build that, too. It's a very, very intuitive and easy to play game. And if uh, if you haven't checked it out, I would uh, I would encourage you to to. Um, yeah, give it a uh, give it a read at least and see what you think of it. If nothing else, for those who are the more have more gray in their beard than uh, uh, than not, uh, you, you may, it'll be a, a pleasant trip down memory lane seeing you know some eighties um, Marvel superheroes as well too with uh, Mohawk Storm and Mullet uh, Rogue. It's uh, it's just replete with that stuff, so it's it's really great. Um, but I guess like the, the setting aside just how much fun I had with the supers thing and how much of a, I did not realize how much of an itch I had to run a superhero game and to run a kind of story focused superhero game because I'm having just a shit ton of fun with that. Um, it's also the simplicity of rules again, you know, like I, uh, I do enjoy the, uh, I do enjoy, uh, crunchy games in, in a cerebral way. I, I enjoy reading them a lot. Um, but I think of, Sort of the conclusion I came to after running Conan. The Conan 2D20 system is amazing. It's a really great. Uh, uh, it's a really great emulation of that kind of uh, that sensibility, that kind of pulp, you know, tactical encounter. But when I compare that to Ash, Ash does. I get out of Ash what I, you know, what I, uh, um, what I think I would get out of Conan um, without having to have all that extra, you know. Uh, that extra crunch. Uh, I don't have to have, uh, you know, a, a set of mechanics for momentum and, and all the other, 
um, things. And I, I don't mean to say that the Conan game isn't amazing. It's a really, really fun game. And if you haven't had a chance to try it, I, I strongly recommend it. It's just for myself right now, I don't think I need that. You know, I'd like more that I have a relatively simple game. Oh, you know, I forgot something else about Ash. Uh, so I, I've written up a, a set of rules for factions in that game as well. I've mentioned it on the channel or on the uh, uh, podcast before. Well, I, I took another pass at them recently uh, with uh, looking at some of the stuff from uh, Ultimate Intrigue in more like clear detail. Uh, we're getting to the point right now where I've got one campaign that is uh, taking place in... Uh, um, Tule in uh, the the or Tuleborg, the the main city for where my campaign is set, and then uh, the guys are are on their way there. The guys in the main campaign in, in Reavers of Tula are going to be there soon. So I wanted to. See, oh, and they've no, actually they've met a new faction. Uh, they, this Wemmick tribe has become uh, uh, an ally of theirs now. So I needed to really take another pass at it. And the thing with with Ash and with these OSR games is it's so easy to write your own rules for this stuff. You know, it's just, it's so easy to add that and be like, hey, here's what we're going to do. And the players in that generally are not, no one's griping about that. No one's griping about like, uh, well, you know, in, in the rules, it does this. And, and I did get some of that from players in uh, Pathfinder. When I told the players in Pathfinder from the outset, like, look, I'm not going to, you know, uh, uh, I'm not going to um, uh, be enforcing the... Uh, so the way attacks of opportunity are going to work is everyone's going to get minus two to attacks of opportunity because I hate how static that Pathfinder fights get. And the response I got was, well, that's going to make some more, you know, some builds more optimized than others. And it's like, well, no shit it will. <laughs> of course, I'm sure it fucking will. Then don't play the ones that are sub-optimized. You know, it's just, it's the, the craziest, uh, you know, kind of uh, response to to uh, game mechanics. And it's, I think it's an unintended consequence of when you put rules for things you know i read recently um a a, a, i can't remember if there's a tweet or there's an article i read but someone had mentioned about how like one of the problems with uh introducing the proficiency system into ad&d and then carrying it over as a baked in part of ad&d second edition i know it was technically optional in that but they had a fucking chapter called proficiency so you know (laughs) how uh you know uh how um optional is that but the thing is, is that by setting down, you know, a, a clear list on your character sheet, a clear list to choose from of things you can pick that your character can do and, and that they're good at, that invariably means that there are things that other characters who have not selected that, that they cannot do. And when you compare that to the, you know, the style of, uh, of play you get with Ash at default in most OSR games when there aren't those kind of skills, you know... Um, it's just, it, it, it is a much more freeing experience when you're not setting those kinds of restrictions. You know, when you're not setting that, well, what is your stealth bonus? What is your whatever? You know, um, what is your, um, uh, do you have training in, in uh, engineering, knowledge engineering or whatever? By codifying that stuff, what you're doing is not only, you're not only defining what that specific character can do, which is something that is important on the player side, you're also defining what other characters cannot do or that they're shitty at because you've set clear delineations for, you know, you fenced off the field and they've got to keep their stuff in certain fences. So maybe that's not their best <laughs> metaphors, but I, I take it you understand what I mean by that. And that's one of the things that I think is, is um, you know, with these rules light games, which is closer, to be honest, I mean, they are old school games, but they're closer in terms of hard and fast rules to what the um, story games are like. 
And uh, there's more rules in these OSR games in Marvel Superheroes, in uh, you know Ash, in AD&D than what there are in um, those story games. But the, I, that's how, you know my problem with the story games has always been that I just I want there to be more structure. I want there to be more game there for the players to and myself to interface with. So we're actually playing a, a game, you know, not just kind of the way I feel with story games, sometimes rolling dice and just telling stories, you know, to interpret them. That's fine, but I mean, I, I do like there to be, from my own personal taste, more actual game there. But anyway, I, I'm getting uh, a little distracted from uh, Marvel superheroes, but that's one of the things that I think is, is really awesome about that is that uh, there's, it's just, you know, having um, just enough rules or just enough rule mechanics so that we can make interesting decisions, we can... Um, we can resolve uh, task resolution in an interesting and you know uh, unexpected way sometimes when you get diff- uh, unexpected uh, dice results, but without um, you know without adding so much that it slows the game down at the table and also uh, narrows the scope of some of the players unnecessarily. You know, um, I um, uh, I recently had come to a conclusion on how I'm going to handle stealth. Stealth is one of those things in, in games that is always really, it's, it's difficult to, uh, to play out properly, you know, like, um, and what I've landed on, I think part of the problem with more modern games when they grapple with it is because they've codified it because everyone's got a stealth stat or a what stealth skill or, or whatever, what have you, they're making rules and some people are going to be better at it than others, you know, because armor gives a penalty to stealth checks or stuff like that, then they're inevitably going to be the one who gets hurt. So, um, but the thing is, is that uh, what, what that means is if you're in a party with someone who is wearing armor, it's just, it's a check in the mail that you're going to fail. Like why bother to try? You know, you may get the, the, the um, odd result where you don't suck, you know, not only does the, the player roll well on their um, disadvantage roll, they also get, uh, you know, have a decent enough uh, bonus to be able to, you know, beat the, uh, the target number of the person listening. Um, rather than doing that, what I've, in my game, because we're, you know, again, we're playing Ash with no, uh, no skills or whatnot. Um, anybody who is, uh, who's just a normal character, they can all automatically try and sneak and hide and shit like that. In the same way that anybody can. Anyone has an intuitive any person in the real world has an intuitive idea of where they can be seen or more likely to be seen or not. And um, what that is, the only thing that's important is whether the person who is keeping watch or might hear them or whatever, whether that person might hear them or not. So it really is just a matter of the, the player, absent any kind of special ability or spell, it's kind of a crapshoot as to whether the person might, it's the bad luck of the guard is looking your way as you're running across the, the little bit of the corridor that is illuminated. Um, but the difference is for, for the thieves and for the rogues, uh, or anyone else who's got sneaky stuff, they actually get to, uh, make their role first. And if they succeed in their stinking or stealthy or whatever thing, then the listener or the viewer does not even get a chance to roll. And that's why they're so much better. And then if they, if the rogues or the thieves or whatever fail that role, then there's still, the other person still has to make the listener or spot check. They're no worse off than before. And in that way, you're not, you know, um, you, you let the sneaky guys be sneaky, you know, like they, the, the thing, I, this kind of uh, thought came from a, a recent session of Ash where I, I didn't, I was making the, the stealth person make rolls for, for their sneaking. 
And it re I realized, I'm like, this is just a check in the mail to fail. Like, this is a terrible way of resolving this. This character is supposed to be sneaky and shit. Like, let, let's let them... Uh, and it's not like they're, you know, the sneak attack rules in these games are so overwhelming that they're going to take out everybody. You know, um, it's not unbalancing to let the sneaky person be sneaky. It's not, it's not fun to force the person who is not, who is sub-optimized for combat to co continuously have to get into some kind of uh, melee just because they, you know, they, they inevitably have the dice turn against them on a dice roll. What this does is it allows common sense to intrude on the game um, by, you know, uh, everybody can try and be sneaky. And obviously if someone's wearing like plate, uh, you know, it's going to be easier for people to hear or spot. If they're carrying a light, it's sure shit in a dark environment. It's sure shit can be easier for people to see them. But um, if you're that uh, sneaky uh, character, that lets that part of your character, the thing you're you're gaining by giving up better attack rates or better you know hit points or whatever, lets that really shine. And that's the kind of thing that you get from OSR style play. And it's it's not just that um, you know you. Uh, uh, it's not just that it's a simplified rule. It's also this, I don't know, like the, the trust that players have with the DM. And that's, I think, the thing that is the most the most fun with both of those games, with Ash and with uh, Marvel Super Heroes, is that the players seem to trust that I'm whatever I'm doing on my side is something I'm doing to make sure we're all having a good time. You know, and uh, in Ash, I don't fudge dice rolls. The roll, dice fall where they may. Um, and But the players don't know. I don't roll in front of them. Um, I roll behind the screen, as it were. Um, I partly roll because it's also dramatic to hear, you know, me making rolls by, <laughs> and that's picked up by the the mic that the players don't know about. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, mostly I let the dice. Uh, well, I mean, not mostly. I let the dice uh, fall where they may in that game, and in um, what do you call it in Marvel Superheroes? Uh, I, I took a pretty, like I said, I took a pretty heavy hand in terms of. Uh, scripting this uh the thing like not only did i set you know what members were going to be i cast them you know what 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 parts of uh alpha flight were going to be in certain scenes um but you know the players were okay with that and um i guess you know if if there is that level of trust and the players are are getting or you know they know what sort of experience they're going to get um then uh boy uh I think that I need to find more ways to make those two things sync up. You know, easy games that are easy to play at the table uh, that don't require a lot of that. Not even that don't require because that makes it sound like I'm just being lazy. There is a virtue in having simple game mechanics. The the fact that they just get out of the way and let the story happen uh, and let the game happen is the true virtue of those things. Um, it means that you're not getting some other things. But the, uh, like you know, the complexity of character generation that you get with Pathfinder, uh, the you know um, the durability you get with uh, Fifth Edition D and D characters, uh, the you know um, nitty gritty detail that you get in your powers with with champions, you're giving all that stuff up. But the thing is, with those things, there are other um, unintended um, externalities that come with it that affect the play of game uh, of the game at the table and. That after a year of exploring this this old school style of play, um, you know, and, and previous years of exploring a bunch of other uh, games as well, I find myself at a place where I know there's two, no, there's three games. There's three games that I just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy running and uh, 
Uh, and I, I, you know, I can't wait to, every time we, I get a chance to run them, I can't wait to get them to the table. The third one in that is that incidentally Starfinder, which is uh, interesting because it's a, it's a game that I, I honestly, like when I read it at first, it, I did not expect to fall as heavily for that game, but I have so much fun running that game. And I think there are so many more OSR sensibilities in that game that are at its core in terms of simplicity of um, uh, task resolution, simplicity of adversaries, ease of preparation, ease of uh, improvising, uh, that is lost in the fact that there is, if you look at it from a casual observer, it seems like there's just a multitude of options for players. So the complexity side of the player uh, uh, player character you know, creation is really high, and the, the gear stuff is really high in that game, but the DM doesn't have to interface with any of that crap. You know, not 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 really. I mean, you can uh, because of the the nature of the economy there and the ability for characters to pretty much craft whatever they want. You don't really need to be trying to pick the best magic item or the best gun or whatever for the player and have it delivered to them in the game. They can probably craft that shit. You know, um, you just need to focus on running a fun and, and evocative game and uh, and relying on the very very easy way to set difficulty numbers and not worry about there's not a rule for everything in that game the way there is in pathfinder it is a much simpler game and uh with that in mind that should give me enough of a prompting to get ready to dive into my overview i'll be recording today uh, the last thing i'm going to record before my uh, well this is the last recording before uh vacation uh, for the podcast is this thing uh, the last um video i'm going to be recording uh, that's non-actual play for the podcast for the channel is going to be an overview of uh, Starfinder. And then I have uh, Alpha Flight, and then I'm gone until the gaming marathon. So um, maybe let's get to the outro. That's a, another really long section talking about Marvel superheroes and some other extra, uh, some other things. But uh, let's get to the outro and see if we can't put a bow on this sucker. Uh, so in conclusion, I guess, um, you know, at the tail end of this year of... Uh, of experience with the uh, old school uh, role playing, which to be honest started a little before with uh, Traveler. You know, running Traveler for the first time uh, last year, because uh, I think it was around January when we started. So it's about uh, a year and a half, I guess, into the sort of exploration of uh, more old school play and old school games. Um, boy, I find myself at a really happy place. I'm really, really enjoying a lot of the games that I uh, I'm running right now. I've been very fortunate to play with some really terrific players who uh, have let me explore a bunch of different um, types of, of gameplay. Um, in the coming months, so um, I know that uh, in addition to running more Ash, uh, running more Marvel superheroes, running more Starfinder, I'm going to be running... Uh, I am going to get uh, RuneQuest to the table just because I do want to I do want to see what's what's going on. The, the RuneQuest Glorantha core book and the Bestiary, and the, oh, I, got, I got the slipcase that has the GM screen in it as well. They are some of the most beautiful... RPG books that I've ever uh, owned, like they're just gorgeous. Um, but uh, I, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not. I don't know. I'm not 100. Uh, percent Honestly, it, like of the, uh, I, I feel like Ash would be doing a lot of what I would get from that type of game anyway. I know it's a very, very different mechanic, but like in a broader sense, the experience I'd be getting, I think I'm getting from Ash anyway. But Call of Cthulhu is uh, is a game I really want to get back to the table again soon. Uh, I. Uh, I had a chance to, to run that uh, one shot set in the 20s uh, about a month ago, and holy crap, did I have fun. I love, I mean, the regular viewers of the uh, 
YouTube channel know this, and, and uh, folks who listen to the podcast probably know as well that I just, I really love me some horror, you know, and uh, boy, oh boy, like running uh, old school Call of Cthulhu again was just a ton of fun. I re- it's a, the most recent edition is is really terrific, and uh, I, I, I've i got a couple of uh, campaigns for, for that as well too, and I really would like to, to give that a try. If for no other reason, um, you know, for, for strictly a streaming perspective it'd be neat to have something different on the stream uh, so that I'm definitely getting to the to the table again um, setting aside the the gaming marathon uh, things um, Warhammer fantasy roleplay fourth edition is something that I have uh, it has some of the most fun I think fun d- uh, downtime rules uh, that I've read in terms of how useful they are and I'm interested in getting that back to the table as well but we've had a little bit of inconsistency with the characters in that campaign so I, I i might need to either kind of like um rethink what i was doing with that um like what i what i've done in the past sometimes is set aside a game when a campaign isn't working and that is a mistake that i don't want to repeat i would like to uh to try if if it's not the, if it's the campaign uh that is causing uh me pause um i i don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were um but the the interesting situation i find myself in is uh, so warhammer fantasy fourth is phenomenal it's a really really solid uh, game we also i also played uh zweihander recently and zweihander is kind of a competing game that is uh as it owes its roots in uh, warhammer fantasy second edition so it's very similar to fourth edition it's just not in the old world um but um it's got some differences to it uh that um like for instance your different careers each give you a special ability and uh it it is it doesn't have hit points there's a couple mechanical changes that are pretty substantial so it is a very different game from warhammer fourth but i had just a ton of fun playing that and it is um it does seem a lot easier uh and to to run as a more modular game than what warhammer fantasy fourth does you know, one, one of the real uh, joys I'm having with both of those campaigns uh, that I mentioned today, the Marvel Superheroes game, the uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game, is that I can ma- I can introduce and make up whatever the fuck I want in it. You know, I'm, I'm running in the Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff, so I don't need to be... I need to be true, I guess, to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but we're in our own little area. We're in Canada for that campaign, so I can add whatever Alpha Flight thing I want through whatever lens I want and not have people cry foul. And not only cry foul, but also have it interfere with their enjoyment. You know, I mentioned on the channel before that one of the reasons why I prefer Ash to Conan is that I can do whatever I want with Ash and not feel like someone's feeling... Uh, why'd you put vampires in Star Wars? You know, why'd you put zombies in Star Wars? This doesn't fit. That doesn't feel right to the source material. I never get that with Ash. And, and, and on top of that, I also am running in my own world, really, in Ash. So if I want to put Wemmick in, even though they're not in the core rulebook, they're there. They're. You know, I've given the the fictional explanation for why it, it isn't according with what's in the rulebook. And that's a particular problem I foresee with RuneQuest. RuneQuest, it, to its, in fairness, it really encourages you to make the game your own, make the world your own. But how do you not approach that kind of you know, complex, rich setting and not expect that you, it will play at the table the way you have it in your head? You know, recent experience with fan feedback, uh, feedback on uh, or backlash to Game of Thrones, and I mean, to be honest, the toxicity of fandom in general for the last however long, 
you know, year or so or longer, maybe. Anyway, I mean, with comics fans, being a long-term comic fan, I've seen this, you know, before. It just it was it was uh, only in the uh, comic community when you get backlash to, to things not playing out the way you anticipated them in your head. And I don't want to get too much, you know, into that. I don't really I don't have a dog in the fight for Game of Thrones. I, I'm like three seasons behind, so I don't really care. But the thing is, is that there are that that's a, I think a good example of of when. The outcomes don't um, match up with their expectations, and that's what you can get in um, in games that uh, where there is a clear idea of what the world is, rather than the players exploring the world that the, that the DM is presenting. And uh, Starfinder, um, the what's uh, Starfinder, uh, Astonishing Swordsman, Sorcerer's Hyperborea, and Marvel Superheroes lets me do all that stuff uh, as as much as I want. So I think that with Zweihander, that might be the freedom of not being in the old world to be able to introduce whatever the hell I want. That's kind of cool. So maybe that's a way to explore that game. Um, I mentioned at the outset that I've got my uh, vacation coming up and I, uh, every year I, uh, I head back uh, to my hometown. I do, it's about a 13 to 14 hour drive to get there, which gives me ample opportunity as I coast across the Canadian prairies to just think. And I, I love having that time to just, um, if usually the drive out is, Finishing the the particulars for our gaming marathon every year. I when I go out, we we run a um, like sixteen hour marathon session of some game, and I've got something real special planned for this year, which I'm looking forward to. Keeping the surprise, un- unfortunately, uh, from everyone. So at the time of recording, I cannot tell you. But if you listen to this after June first, you will see what it is. Um, on the uh, YouTube channel, and I also use that week to try to sort of like reorient how I want to plan the next. Uh, six months of gaming as well too. And I've got a lot of really good, you know, the lessons in particular after the last week, it, uh, I didn't feel great about ending the Iron Gods uh, Pathfinder game, partly because I, I really did like the, the players in that. I griped about some of the players, you know, um, and how they were hewing to, I felt too closely to the Pathfinder rules, but like, that's the reason they like those games. It's, it's not, it's not a personal uh, shortcoming for the players. It's that they're, what they wanted out of a game is just not what I was, wanting to offer. So I don't slight them for that whatsoever. Um, but, um, you know, uh, I having run some of these other games the last little while, uh, in particular this week, like, boy, this is the stuff I enjoy doing. This is the stuff I think that makes for... Um, it's the reason that I, you know, that I, I run games is because it's the surprise and the thrill of seeing what players do when they're presented in these crazy circumstances, you know, and then seeing the, the twists that the dice results throw into their, uh, into their plans. It's just, boy, boy, I love role-playing games. (laughs) They're so much fun. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, engaging with, uh, second edition D&D in the uh, coming things. I mean, it's going to be Ash with, uh, you know, a, a D&D second edition veneer on it. So it's going to be my uh, astonishing dark sun is sort of what I've been calling it. I'm looking forward to trying that out. Um, I am really looking forward to uh, my ongoing campaigns. I'm looking forward to uh, playing some more Call of Cthulhu. Um, and I, I'm looking at my, my uh, bookshelf here of the things I got set out. Those are really the ones that, that jump out at me right now. I have, uh, Legend of the Five Rings, uh, I've got as a, the next charity session, which will be hopefully in uh, mid June. So we can get that, uh, that done. Um, and I'm looking forward to, that's a really fun setting. It's a really, um, it's a really, really good game. I think it's the best version of, uh, Five Rings that's been published to date, but I just don't want to run it as an ongoing game right now. I've got other things, uh, other fish I want to fry you know, and, uh, 
It's it's funny that there's so many other games. I actually, I mean, I have had a lot of other games recommended from to me by uh, by uh, viewers on the channel too, and the the challenge is is that there's only so many hours in in the given week for for one, but also you know um, I like spending like the looking where we are right now. We have uh, of the five campaigns that I kicked off, I think it's five, that I kicked off at the beginning of the year. Two of them are gone, um, and one of them is uh, looking for a, a, um, a revamp. So the Iron Gods campaign running Pathfinder, that's that's gone now. The um, uh, Delta Green game is gone as well. Um, but the Ash game, the Starfinder game, um, I don't ever want to stop playing those games. Like, I have such a good time at the table with with all of those, and it's one of those things where all the stars align with a you know great players, great game, good you know um, uh, good fun adventures. Um, the Warhammer game has been that way some days, and then some other days it's frustrating. And I think that the the what I need to do with that one is uh, is for one like may, uh, maybe open it up for more players so we can let more people come and go from it, and then just run it the way that I run. Um, you know, like Ash, you know, some of my, my less structured Ash games and just kind of let, you know, write for the session for, for a while until that game kind of takes shape. Uh, what I'm doing right now with it, in fact, I think I just solved my problem. That's what I need to do is just write for the session. Um, not write, not try to run through the overarching campaign that just doesn't seem to be, uh, I'm not satisfied with how it's playing out. And partly it's because I don't think I, I did enough work to fit the campaign to what the players are actually doing and, and what would motivate them. So, um, so there's that and, uh, Zweihander, um, Zweihander in particular, because I just had so much fun running that. I have uh, one ring, um, as uh, on my, my list of to do things as well. And uh, I had been thinking about running the, uh, game of ice and uh, game of ice and fire, no game, song of ice and fire, uh, RPG, from uh, Green Ronin. Uh, it's, it's written by Robert Schwab, the guy who did uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord. So I, I love that game. I love his design chops. But I'm kind of now thinking that I don't really need to do that because I can uh, I can probably get a lot of what I would get out of that game from my Ash game or for one of my Ash games. So I, I'm not uh, I'm not sure I'm gonna um, I'm gonna really actually use that game. I mentioned in my sort of status update that I was thinking about running that, but I don't think so. Um, so I guess what that'll give me in terms of a slate of games on the table, it'll give me some more old school games. It'll give me a weird, uh, give me a chance to get back to Dark Sun, which is one of those, uh, you know, uh, things I, I've been, um, an itch I've been dying to scratch for years and years. I, I really love that setting as a kid, so I'll have to see how it holds up. Um, gives me a chance to get Zweihander in the hands of some players and see what, how they respond to that, if they enjoyed as much as I did. Um, and... Yeah, and I mean, I guess one ring, one of the reasons why, just a, a last aside here, I'm kind of all over the place in this outro. Uh, one of the reasons why the one ring has kind of gone down on my list right now is because of the complexity of the mechanics. Um, because there's going to, it will, um, I when I played it, uh, we had a great deal of fun, but that's because everybody had the books, everyone read the books, everyone knew the rules. I'm not, you wouldn't, uh, we weren't having to have the, the rules taught to us while we play. And that's something I just, um, I'm, I'm more interested right now in just playing the games, having fun stories, having fun adventures. And that's what these simplified games allow me to do. You know, Star Trek Adventure or Star Trek Adventures. Yeah, that's the other thing. I, uh, 
I got the box set for that, and I'm really interested in seeing how that plays because that is, uh, I love Star Trek as a, a setting for sci-fi, uh, particularly because it's not, um, it's not a combat or, you know, ne'er-do-well kind of thing. It's really a genuine, like, exploration kind of, you know, exploration diplomacy type thing, and I, I like that. It's, it's mysteries, and it's, um, well, I mean, I think it's mysteries in general, mysteries or, or uh, character-driven stuff. And I'm interested to see how this newest edition works. Uh, I've heard from one of my um, players in um, my Starfinder game that this edition owes a lot to um, more to the story games. So I'm interested to see how that pairs up with that 2D20 mechanic. But um, yeah, but anyway, I've got there. I most recently picked up a uh, starter set for it. And that's the way that that was my gateway drug to the Fantasy Flight Star Wars games, which is another thing I'd like to... I had talked about exploring again, but um, because of the complexity of the game, um, I just, you know, um, if I can get a, a satisfying session with my players in games like Marvel Superheroes or Ash or, you know, um, Zweihander maybe, uh, or Warhammer, uh, where I don't need to go into a, a huge explanation of all the different facets of the game, um, I'm kind of thinking I want to do that for the next little while. You know, not not have to be teaching the game as much, uh, you know, spending more time getting the players to a level of familiarity with the game so they can make meaningful, you know, decisions on a, on a tactical level or a mechanical level, um, rather than just me holding their hand and telling them how to do the stuff, you know. And uh, that's not because I don't, I don't like teaching games to players. It's because I think that that's part of the fun of playing these games, right? That's part of the fun is getting your head around the rules and then, you know, engaging them. So, so that's what's on the agenda. Uh, we'll see what happens after the gaming marathon. I traditionally have come back sometimes with a, a very different idea of what I want to do, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of where my head's at right now. I, I've, um, and to that end, I rearranged my shelf as well too. I, I rearranged all my gaming shelf. So I've got my, the stuff that's really high on my list in easy access, but you can expect to hear, more of me yapping on this podcast and more of me broadcasting in the uh, on the channel with um, in addition to astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea and Starfinder and uh, um, Marvel superheroes, uh, you can expect some AD and D second edition that is very 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 much reworked to work like um, astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea. You can expect some Star Trek adventures, some Call of Cthulhu. Um, you will see some rune quest, though I'm kind of dragging my feet on that. Um, Warhammer fantasy is going to carry on. I'm going to take another stab at reworking that campaign and hit the ground running with it when we get back. And, uh, and some Zweihander. I'm going to be able to figure out between now and, uh, the, um, what do you call it? Uh, now and, um, when I get back from the gaming marathon, something interesting to do with that because it's, it is such an interesting game. So anyway, that's a very, very long outro. That's where we stand right now. And uh, that's where my head's at in terms of uh, after a, a year or so of uh, OSR play, I feel like I've learned an awful, awful lot of lessons from it. Um, you know, not, not the least of which is, is that the way you learn games, the way you learn what works for you uh, as a DM, as a player, um, is by playing them. You know, um, that's, that's, I mentioned on my YouTube channel that... Um, you know, I can appreciate how frustrating it is for viewers sometimes to get engaged with a campaign, to really get to like the players or the characters that the players are playing, and then to have that campaign just fiddle, you know, fizzle out. 
Um, what I've done in the, this year is every time a campaign has fizzled out, I have gone back and, and recorded a postmortem for the game to explain here's how I th you know why things aren't going forward. Here's what I think went wrong and why it wasn't a or not went wrong necessarily, but why it wasn't the the fit for the game that we wanna we wanna run. And um, but the thing is, is I mean this is the reality of gaming. Uh, you know I think that there are some groups that uh, will soldier on and play a game through you know, hell or high water, but I think that's the rarity, you know, I don't think there's, there's a, uh, an awful lot of, there are, there may, I, I, not there may be, I know there are groups that, that do play through, you know, Pathfinder Adventure Pass from beginning to end, or they played through, I don't know, like, uh, cleared out, um, uh, what is it, uh, Undermountain, or whatever, you know, whatever, pick your, your wide sweeping campaign, I know I've got a buddy who played through ba a basic D&D campaign from level one to level 36 with the same players, when he was a teenager. And that, that's f fantastic. But that is by far the outlier. There are more aborted campaigns and like uh, things that stalled out because of changes in circumstances, changes in levels of interest or whatever, or character deaths that just didn't go any further. And that's the, that's the reality of what gaming is. And um, that's what I do on my channel. You know, on my YouTube channel, I, the actual plays are actual plays. They're not, um, they're not uh, warts and all. They're not scripted. Uh, scenes uh, there's no contractual obligations between the players to play through from beginning to end nor is there on my part we play and broadcast because we love role-playing games and we love talking to people about role-playing games and um and that's i think what what one of the realities of role-playing games is not everyone's going to be a success but, the th but there's nothing wrong with that you know i've talked in a previous podcast about that and uh i won't go into it again but that's for sure one of the best lessons I i've learned is playing more things, trying more things, really helps you figure out what's stuck. So even though I threw, you know, five games against the wall at the start of the year, and two of those have, have stuck solid, and one of them looks like it may be peeling off the wall, um, that's not, it's not the appropriate way to look at it by looking at the ones that didn't stick. It's the ones that are solid there that I thoroughly enjoy playing every time. Uh, taking the lessons from that, taking the lessons from the ones that didn't stick and then throwing more shit at the wall and see what sticks. It's unfortunate that this metaphor involves throwing excrement, but uh, I take it you understand what I mean by it. So anyway, what I'm saying is play more games. Yeah. So anyway, that's a really long episode, but that's the last episode for a couple of weeks until I get back from vacation, unless I kind of get the uh, bit by the creative bug and jump back on, but expect not. Let's expect that I'll be back again in about uh, two weeks' time from the time of recording. As always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding this episode, please don't hesitate to leave a comment. Uh, you can shoot me uh, an email at dungeonmusings at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Dungeon Musings. You can uh, shoot me a voice message on Anchor as well. Um, and uh, from now, the time of recording until July 1st, 2019, we are running our charity fundraising uh, campaign. Well, on the YouTube channel, we always run this charity fundraising campaign called Heroes Save Villages. And from now until July 1st, 2019, we're running a raffle, a charity raffle. And the charity raffle has a number of very cool prizes available. Um, for every $25 that you donate to the Heroes Save Villages campaign, um, you can find the link to that if you go to the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. Every $25 donated to SOS Children's Villages International gives you entered one time into the, the raffle. Um, the grand prize is a deluxe um, Platinum Edition Dragon Heist box set. It's the Waterdeep Dragon Heist box set put out by Beetle and Grimm a few months ago. 
Uh, at time of uh, release, it was a $500 US product. Uh, it can be yours for the, or chance at winning it for uh, $25. This thing is amazing. It's got a ton of like a great uh, handouts and uh, player references and maps. And it's just a, an amazing uh, supplement to, uh, to playing that uh, particular uh, adventure. And if you're a fifth edition DM, this is a great resource to have at the table. Um, in addition, we've got a bunch of other uh, prizes, including uh, core rulebooks for Warhammer Fantasy 4th Edition, core rulebook for RuneQuest Glorantha, the, both core rulebooks for Delta Green, the core rulebook for Legend of the Five Rings from uh, Fantasy Flight, um, in addition to a bunch of other PDFs and a bunch of other prizes, uh, including, um, gosh, uh, Starfinder uh, Starter Set and a uh, copy of the Beetle and Grimm um, Salt, what is it? Uh, Secrets of Salt Marsh, their, their deluxe edition of that game as well. Uh, we heard from them and they've donated that. I should say as well, it's Cubicle 7 who donated the uh, physical copy of the Warhammer Fantasy 4th edition game. Uh, Modifius has donated complete libraries of uh, PDFs for Star Trek Adventures and for uh, Conan 2D20. So there's some really great prizes uh, that uh, either myself or some publishers have made available. So if that sounds of interest to you, definitely check it out. And it um, any money donated goes directly to help the children who benefit from uh, the SOS Children's Villages International Charity. And uh, you can learn all about that at the, uh, the webpage for the Heroes Save Villages campaign. So anyway, that is it for me today. I got work that I've been putting off that I should really get to. Probably should go walk the dog as well too. Sun's out. It's getting up close to the vacation. Uh, until next time. I hope that uh, your gaming uh, is going great, and I'll see you again soon.